Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. Baptist Church. That was terrible. <laughs> Let's try that again one more time. Good morning, Word Baptist Church. Hey, good to see you this morning. Good to see some familiar faces, some new faces. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Walter. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Word Baptist Church. Pastor Jamar is out, so I get the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, we've been going through the book of Ruth. And so we're closing out this book today. So we've, we've gone through chapter by chapter, looking at this Old Testament uh, story. So if you're wondering, where is the book of Ruth? It's like the eighth book. So go, go to the very beginning and just keep flipping pages. And if you get to Ruth chapter four, that's where we're going to be today. So if you want to open your Bible, go ahead and get there. Or if you just want to use the handout that's in front of you, it's got the passage we're going to be going through. Uh, and so one of the things that, that I, I love uh, is group participation. So it's, some of us, we, we come into a service and we really just kind of check out. We sit back, we're, we've already sang, we sat down, we're going to listen to somebody speak for a little while, and then go to lunch, right? So I, I want you to stay with me. I'm probably going to be asking you some things throughout this time together. And I'm going to ask you one question before we even really get started in this book, just to kind of find out who we have here. Uh, how many of you would say, I love watching movies. I'm a movie guy. I could go to the movies, watching good movies where I'm at. Okay, so I got some that are right here. How many of you are like, you know what? Movies are good, but I'd rather read a book. You know, the movie always pales in comparison to the book. I love books. Some of y'all are like, I don't want to admit that, right? So, okay, I'm going to ask it one more time. High and proud, right? How many of you are movie people in here? Okay, how many of you are book people in here? Some of you are like undecided of like, I, I don't know what's going to ask next, right? So it's, it's okay. It's, it's one of these things. I found out like some, there, there are more book people in this service than there were in the last hour. We had like maybe two. They were kind of doing this back here and they did the quick look around, right? Some, sometimes we don't like books because if you're like me, you like reading. Like we get three paragraphs in and our brain kind of shuts off. We're like, how did I even wind up on this page, right? But movies, we can binge watch. We can watch Netflix for like 12 hours in one single story. And it's, it's midnight before we even realize it, right? So stories have a way of grabbing a hold of us. How many of you have ever watched a movie, right? And it could be like a suspenseful scene or something. And all of a sudden, you, you, 
without realizing your heart starts beating a little bit faster, maybe your palms start sweating, you're like in the mix of this thing, like, what is going to happen, right? Because we have a way of getting drawn into a story. Narrative does that for us, right? There, there's power in a story, and it because, it's because it helps us get in and see what's happening, right? There's, there's purpose behind a story, behind a narrative, right? It's to get us to relate to truth that we see. There's something about watching a story or seeing a narrative play out in front of us that we recognize, man, there's something about that. That's true. I feel that pain too. I know where this person's coming from. We remember stories. You probably can't tell me the three points that Pastor Jamar had last week, but you probably remember a story that he shared from two years ago about his son jumping in his arms because a little dog came and started barking, right? Story has a way of helping us to remember truth applied. And narrative is over the majority of the Bible. God has known this about us, right? He's wired us this way. And so he's given us his word. And a lot of times in narrative form and story form for us to see, remember, and know, what do I do with this today? So quick guess, how many of you can guess what kind of genre Ruth happens to be? I said it like 15 times. Narrative, right? It's a story. And so, I'm so glad you came today. Thank, thank you for that, right? Story, it's a narrative. And we're going to go through this, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you something, right? Instead of just listening to me talk, I want you to put your, I want you to feel this story. I want you to put yourself in their shoes, in their position. I want you to ask yourself, what would I do if that was me right now? Because here's one of the sad things. We can come to God's word and we can read this as words on a page and we can forget that these are real people, real events really happen. We can think of these people as characters of one note and forget they have real dreams, real hopes, real burdens. And I want you to feel this this morning. As we go into this and ask yourself, where do I find myself in this narrative? You guys good so far? Okay, perfect. Right? So we're going to go through this, right? And, and I want you to put yourself in this real person's situation, right? So at the very beginning of Ruth, chapter 1, very first line, we see that there's a famine in the land. How many of you have ever gone through a famine before? That's pretty much what I thought, too. The same response in the first service. We're like, okay, famine, right? We, we freak out when we go to the store and there's no toilet paper or chicken, right? So I, I, want you, I want you to imagine for a second, you go to the store, there's no food on the shelf whatsoever. So you're like, oh, no big deal. I'll go to Amazon, get them to deliver me some food. Out of order, out of stock, nothing there, right? You go to the garden and even what little you had out there was eaten by a worm or something, right? You have nothing. I want you to imagine in your mind those infomercials that we quickly turn the channel from when they come on about Yemen or in Somalia or Sudan where they say, you can keep alive this hungry child for just a dollar a day. You have that in your mind right now. Famine. So this is a real situation that's going on during this time. And it opens up, hey, 
during that famine in Bethlehem, in the time of Judges, when Judges judged, this is what happened. There was a guy by the name of Elimelech, and he had two sons and a wife and a real dilemma. I want you to put yourself in his position for just a second. Think husbands or head of households, right? You have a real choice right now. Do I sit here, even though I know God told me this is the promised land, do I remain here and potentially watch my wife and two sons starve to death? And you get a little glimpse of what Elimelech is wrestling with. Do I, do I stay? What do I do? And he makes a choice. Turns out being a bad one, but he makes a choice to say, you know what, I'm going to go to another land. I'm just going to sojourn. I'm going to go there for just a little while until the famine ends, and we're going to come back. So Elimelech goes to Moab. And if we're, we have, how many of you right now, when I say the word Moab, it does something in your heart? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? When he went to Moab, the people who were originally hearing this, then you can hear a collective head smack at this moment. He's like, of all the places, why do you go here? I understand the famine, I understand the need, but why Moab? Moab was the enemy of the Israelites. They had conquered them. They had made them slaves. They had mistreated them. They were the same ones. When Israel was trying to come to the promised land, they hired some prophet and said, hey, you know what? Why don't you curse them so God will not bless them? And Balaam tried to do it three times, but he couldn't. And he said, you know what? If you really want God to not be with the Israelites, why don't you get your Moabite women to marry their sons and have them worship your gods? And that's exactly what happened. So these Moabite women were marrying the Israelites' sons, and they were worshiping false gods, and God sent a plague. 24,000 people died. And so when people read Moab, that's what image comes in their mind. They're like, what are you doing? If you had any hope for God to do something, that Moab is not the place to do it. And sure enough, he goes, and guess what happens? Elimelech dies. You think, could this get any worse? The answer is yes. They married two Moabite women, and were like, oh man, it's Numbers 24 all over again. What's going to happen? And you, you're just thinking, man, this is not good. This is not good. And sure enough, these two sons, Machlon and Kilion, they, they die after marrying these women. And now Ruth, I want you to put yourself in, I mean, Naomi's position right now. Naomi, Elimelech's wife, the one who's sitting there who lost her husband, her two sons, and now all she has are these two Moabite women staring back at her, asking, now what? She is broken. You better believe she's replaying this process in her mind, like, if only we had him not come here. Maybe my son and my husband would still be alive. If only we had gone when we had the chance. Maybe this wouldn't have happened. God, why did you do this to me? You feel a little bit of that right now. And so she hears, this is the amazing thing. She hears in the land of Moab that God had visited Bethlehem and that food was there again. So she's like, you know, I'm going home. And she tells these two Moabite daughter-in-laws, hey, don't come with me. You go back to your mama. That's really what she said. Go back to your mom's house, right? Go back to your mama. Get married. Have, have children. You don't want to come with me. Naomi is trying to spare them difficulty. And one daughter-in-law goes home. She's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go. But Ruth, she's like, no, I'm not 
letting you go. And we hear this beautiful announcement that Ruth comes in and says to Naomi, who's telling her to leave, it would be better if she didn't come. Ruth says to her, don't ask me to go anymore. Your people will be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, guess what? That's where I'm staying. If, where you die, that's where I'm going to be buried. Only death can separate us because she was committed to this widow to help her in her time of need. She's like, I'm not jumping ship just because it'll be easier. And, and at this point, Naomi's like, okay, I see I'm not getting anywhere. And so she remains silent and they go back to Bethlehem. They don't even say a word for 50 miles. Can, have you ever been in a car ride with somebody and you guys are kind of upset with one another and nobody's talking and it just makes the ride <laughs> that much longer, right? That's, that's the picture here. They weren't saying anything. And Naomi is bitter towards God. She's like, God has afflicted me. God has hurt me. She's lamenting what happened. And in this moment, you might be thinking, is this wrong to lament? Is this bad to do? And, and this is something we see throughout the Old Testament of, of laments. And I, I'll give you one, Job, right? How many of you have heard of Job before? Show of because if you haven't, I'm telling you the story of Job too, right? So Job, Job was a righteous man. He lost in one day, he lost his entire family, except for his wife. He lost his entire livelihood. He lost everything. And he makes this statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's right. The Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin. So is it wrong to lament? Is it a sin? No. We see that even in the next chapter, Job was like, he gets sick and sores all over. And he's like, should I take good things and not bad things from the Lord? Or there's an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. Right? Lamentations. The prophet Jeremiah, who did what God wanted him to do, is lamenting what happened. Right? So if you ever want some nice nighttime reading, go to Lamentations. It'll cheer you up. Right? Actually, do, do write this down. Lamentations chapter 3. Because there's, there's some things in there that Jeremiah goes straight. It's like, God, you have broken our teeth with gravel. You have shot me with your arrows. You have, I mean, a whole lot more than what Naomi's saying here. But then the one verse that we like, because it's the nice happy verse, right? In the verse that most people know in Lamentations chapter 3, his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. We sang it just a second ago. Great is your faithfulness to me. Right? So lamentation is part of it. And, and Ruth and Naomi are coming back up. And it's okay, really. In the book of Lamentations, it says, pour out your heart to God like water. Call to him, cry out to him in the night watches. So don't try to stuff down the pain. God knows it's there anyway, but cry out to him. And, and Naomi, Naomi is bitter. In fact, she comes back in and all the townspeople of Bethlehem come. They see her and they're like, they haven't heard from her in over 10 years. They didn't know if she was alive or dead or what happened because there's no email, text message, all that. Like, she can't Facebook, Twitter, like anything like this, right? So they see Naomi coming and it's like, Naomi, is that you? And she's like, don't call me that. Call me bitter. And Ruth is right there next to her at this point. And she says, you know, I left here full and I've come back here empty. I had stuff. I had 
family, I've got nothing now. And I want you to put yourself in Ruth's position. Right? This foreigner, this is her one chance to make a good first impression, right? And this is how she gets introduced as nothing. You better believe Ruth's heart right now feels like it just got ripped out, thrown on the ground, and squished by Naomi because she just gave up her family, her friends, her chances of ever getting married again to be an unwelcome foreigner in a strange land with hardship. And Ruth and Naomi are the odd couple. Right now, Naomi is bitter because she has no hope, no heir, no future. Ruth is trying to figure out, now what? We get to, to two, and she's like, hey, can I at least go out to the field to work? Get us some food or something? And, and Naomi's like, yeah, go, go. But it was real danger. She could have been harmed. She could have been hurt. She could have been mistreated. She could have been maligned. And she just so, I love this. She just so happened to find herself in Boaz's field. And Boaz just so happens to be Elimelech's near relatives who just so happens to be rich, wealthy, powerful, a man of influence, a man of standing who could do something about their situation. And I love it because the author just pours this out. It is like, can you believe this? Only God could do this. And it just so happened while she was there, Boaz came out to inspect the fields. And he's like, Who, whose young woman is this? And the, the pages are dripping with how people view her. They're like the Moabitess, Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, that Moabite woman, right? I mean, they, they just all throughout just say, oh, yeah, the Moabitess. That's, that's her. And something completely unexpected happens. Boaz has compassion on this foreigner in his field. And you know what? He even comes up and says, hey, 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 Ruth, don't, don't go around to other fields. Don't, don't go to a different place. You have a spot right here next to my workers. They will watch over you. I've told nobody to harm you. Please. And we see Ruth fall on her face. And we may think, man, that's a little bit extreme, don't you think? Because we don't really get the weight of this moment. She says this to Boaz, how can I, a foreigner, have found favor in your eyes? She makes the statement, I'm not even worthy to be one of your slaves. And Boaz goes a step further. He's right. He's like, okay, you know what? My servants will give, my male servants will give you water to drink. You drink from our jars. In fact, you know what? Come sit at my table. The owner of the field served the foreigner worker in the field with barley. In fact, gave her enough to take home to Naomi, leftovers. She had 48 pounds of barley to take home in one day. Just imagine that. 48, 48 pounds is pretty heavy, right? For grain, for one day, for one woman manually doing something. She comes home and she just lays it at Naomi's feet and her jaw drops. She's like, where have you been working? She was expecting maybe a little meal for the night to get past some things, right? And then she just says, oh yeah, and here's some food already cooked as well. And you see this process of what is going to happen. And she's like, who did you go and work with today? May he be blessed. And you see a glimmer of hope come back across Naomi's face. God has not forgotten us. And then almost, almost like to the very last, and I love how the author does this. He, he, he puts it on the last word. Naomi comes up. And say, who have you been working with? Ruth says, 
the name of the man of the field in whom I have been working, saves it for the end, Boaz. And she can't believe it. She's like, do you know whose field you've been in? This is, this is, this is our redemption. And we see three months pass. They're just working. Nothing's happening between Boaz and Ruth. And this is the last day of the harvest. He's winnowed. He's got all of his grain at the threshing floor. And Naomi comes up with a plan and says, Ruth, here's what you do. You go to him in the middle of the night. First, take a bath, please. You need to get clean, sister. And put on new clothes. Basically, people were wearing clothes to express mourning at this point. We used to do it here in this culture too. Like women would wear black for an entire year to express, I'm mourning the loss of my husband. And so whatever clothes she was wearing was expressing that. And Naomi said, hey, take that off and put something else on and go to him and uncover his feet and lay down. And when he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. And that's exactly what Ruth did. But she went off script as soon as he woke up. She's like, Boaz said, who who are you? And Ruth had so much to lose at this point. I don't want you to miss this because this is breaking all of the cultural rules at this point. She, a foreigner, coming to an Israelite man, and she proposed to him. She went further and said, hey, look, I know you can redeem me, your maid. Cover me with your garment. Take me into your home. She could have lost everything. She could have been scolded. I mean, this foreigner to this Israelite, this young woman to this older man, this worker in the field to the owner of the field, and you better believe her heart was pounding out of her chest waiting for this response from Boaz. What is he going to say? Am I kicked out? And Boaz leans in. Says, my daughter. Blessed are you. Your kindness has not gone on. And Boaz, in this moment, for the first time, we see him being vulnerable. We see him being humble. Basically, what Boaz is saying in this moment, he's like, hey, you, you're a woman of excellence. You could have had anybody, and you chose me. He's blown away at this. And we, for the first time, we start to think Boaz, the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem, he had wealth, he had fields, he had standing, he had clout. He was a man who loved God. Why is this guy still single? And he's probably in his mid to late 40s at this point. And you start to realize he's alone. He has all this stuff, but he has no one. And it could be because of who his mother was, right? This is the son of Rahab, the harlot, the Canaanite prostitute. Everybody know. You go throughout Scripture, and it's always Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, right? This was his mom. And it could be because no one was like, hey, we're not marrying into that family. But for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. He was alone, and he saw this as finally an opportunity to share life with somebody to meet a legitimate need in a legitimate way. And for Ruth to say, finally, he said, yes, I'm going to be taken care of. We're okay now. But then there's one problem. 
He's like, but wait, there's, there's, one, there's one hitch. There's a guy, a redeemer, a kinsman who's closer to you than I am. And he has the right to marry you. It's his responsibility. And we're left with this cliffhanger of like, what is going to happen? Is, is Ruth going to get married off to somebody she doesn't even know? Somebody who's not even been a part of this? Is Boaz going to continue to be single, alone, left out? What, what will happen in this story? And that's when we pick up in Ruth chapter 4. Long intro, I know, but hang with me, right? Ruth chapter 4. Because I want you to continue in this story. In Ruth chapter 4, we see this redemption story come to a close. We, we see what really is going to happen here. So Ruth chapter 1, we see two people being highlighted. We see on one hand, we see Boaz, and then we see what's his name? Boaz and this other kinsman, right? We, we see these two people in this narrative, right? So in chapter 4, verse 1, we'll pick up and we'll look through what is going to happen and what does this even have to do with us today? Chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. So let me tell you something about the gate, right? The gate at this point was some place that everybody had to pass through. If you're going to the field, you got to go through the gate. If you're going for water, you got to go to the gate. This is where people met. But it's also something like a public town square or, or another way, like the people's court, right? People heard cases at the city gate. And that's where Boaz goes and he sits down and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So this guy shows up, right? And so he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So right, if you're taking notes and you want to circle the word friend right there, there's something about this word. So when he's saying this, we say, oh, it's kind of polite. Have you ever had that really awkward situation where somebody you know is walking right up to you and you're like, I can't remember this guy's name. What is his name? And he comes up and you still can't remember it. And you're like, hey, pal, what, what's, what's up, bud? Or if we want to Christianize it, hey, brother, how, how are you doing? Right? That's what's going on here. When he says, hey, friend, and it's not that Boaz doesn't know his name. And it's not even that the author doesn't know his name. They're trying to make an intentional point for a second. Really, literally what it means, friend, he says, turn aside, so-and-so. Turn aside, what's your name? Sit here. And he does. And I'll explain why that's important in a second. And then Boaz, right, doesn't stop there. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down as they were passing by. Now, Boaz, we see him first as a godly man. He's yelling out to the workers in the field, God bless you. God be with you. We see him as godly. Then we see him as compassionate with Ruth. Then we see him as humble on the threshing floor. And now we see Boaz living up to his name in strength. This is a guy who commands elders, hey, turn aside, sit here. And they sit there. This is setting the stage for, man, this is going to be good. I can't wait to see what Boaz does in this situation. And so then in verse 3, right, we see this. He said, to the closest relative, to the would-be redeemer, so-and-so, Naomi, who has come back from the field, from the land of Moab, right? I mean, it's, it's going good so far. We're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to get to this. We're finally going to get some conclusion. And then he says, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has 
to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech? So I, I, I thought to inform you by saying, buy it before those who are sitting here. And you're like, if you're reading this, you're like, Boaz, what are you, what are you doing? This is, this is about Ruth, not some piece of land over here. And it's almost like he's kind of sweetening the deal a little bit. He's like, hey, I thought to inform you saying, buy it before those who are sitting there and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem the land, if you will redeem it, buy it. But if not, tell me so that I may know. For there is no one other but you to redeem it. For I am after you, he said, I will. So you're like, Boaz, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? And if you're wondering really what, what Boaz is doing, Leviticus chapter 25, 25. This is a man who knows the law, and he's laying it out there. Leviticus 25, 25 talks about if, if a person, an Israelite, is too poor and has to sell the land that they own, somebody who's close to them should buy it so it stays in the family. Right, so when so-and-so is hearing this, he's hearing, hey, Naomi, remember her? She, she's come back and she has this land that she can't take care of. Would you want to buy it? And he's thinking, Mr. So-and-so is like, this is a great deal because Naomi's past childbearing age. If I, if I buy the land, she doesn't have an heir and I get to keep the land that I, and give it to my descendants after me. This, yeah, of course, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm going to buy the field. It's great for me. So then Mr. So-and-so says, yes, I will redeem it. And you're like, how is this going to turn out? And Boaz says this. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. By the, by the way, uh, almost one more thing I, I forgot to tell you. Um, the day that you buy that field, right? The, the day that you get that from the hand of Naomi. Um, by the way, you, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess. And if we're watching this, if we're seeing this movie, right, I can just imagine you looking to Mr. So-and-so's face and he's all happy and smiling about the field and he gets to Ruth, the Moabitess, and all of a sudden his face goes like this and Boaz just keeps hitting. He's like, yeah, Ruth, the Moabitess, you know, the widow of the deceased. You marry, you marry her too in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, not your inheritance. You don't get this field. He does. His family does. Ruth does. And the closest relative at this point, <laughs> he's like, oh, I can't redeem it. And you're thinking, why? You were so happy just five seconds ago about getting this piece of land. What changed? And he said, hey, I, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my, my own inheritance. It's not that he didn't have the money. It's that he was consumed with what he might possibly have to give up. He was consumed with thinking, my estate might go to somebody else's family. My, my name might stop here and I, I'm just going to build up somebody else's. I'm going to pay for their field. I'm going to pay to do this for somebody else's name? No way. He didn't care anything about Ruth. He didn't, he didn't care anything about his brother's name. He cared about himself and what he had to lose. And he just said, no, I, I can't. I can't do that. 
That's too much. Redeem it for yourself. You take it. You may have right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. It's not that he couldn't, it's that he would not redeem it. He was so consumed with what he had to give up. And, and, and I, I think so many times we get in this same pattern of thinking, what do, I, what do I give up to do what's right? Is it worth me giving up something to do what I know is the right thing to do? To help somebody out in need? And we, 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 like Mr. No-Name, back away and be like, no, nah, man, I can't do that. And here's, here's a little piece of culture. I love this in chapter 4, verse 7. Sorry, chapter 4, verse 7. Don't have enough fingers, right? This is something that we miss because we don't understand the culture. If you want to write down Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10 unpacks what's really happening right here in this short little verse. So get this, right? Mr. So-and-so says, I can't redeem it. Boaz, you redeem it. Now it was their custom at former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. Here's what they did. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. But there's so much more. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. And so I'm going I'm to have you keep that on the screen, right? Because for us, we're like, okay, maybe it's a long, weird walk back home with only one sandal. And what's the big deal, right? But in Deuteronomy 25, here's the big deal. This is an honor-shame culture. And what happens here, if there is a man who does not help out his brother's widow, and he continues to say, I'm not going to help build up his name. I'm not going to redeem her. I'm refusing to do this. In Deuteronomy 25, it says that the widow, the wife of the brother, is to go to the gate, which they happen to be, and spit in his face. Take off his sandal and say, thus shall it be done to the one who does not raise up his brother's name. And his name, Mr. No Name, did get a name. His name shall be called the house of him whose sandal was removed. And that's why right here, you see, this is the last time we hear about Mr. No Name. He, he got a name, all right, for not doing what was right, the one whose sandal was removed. And he just slips back into obscurity for the rest of the passage. Now, we come to the two people you've been waiting for, right? This whole time, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz and Ruth. So Mr. So-and-so is out of the picture at this point, and Boaz stands up to the people right in this moment. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. And all that belong to Kilion and Machlon. Moreover, I have required Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, and I want you to circle this, to be my wife. Circle my wife. Because we can miss this. We think it's a nice love story. Yeah, it's, it's that, but there's more going on here, right? When the first time we see Ruth, the Moabitess, we see her in the field saying, I am a foreigner. I am not even worthy to be your slave. Then we see her daring to say, maybe you, I can be your maid servant. 
And what Boaz is doing here in front of everybody, he's saying, Ruth the Moabitess is my wife, my side, my equal. She is with me. In, in Hebrew, for husband and wife, it's ish and isha. What Boaz is doing here is so significant. He's like, hey, look, I know what you're calling her, Ruth the Moabitess. I know her people, right? But she is my wife, and I am standing with her. The man of power in strength of clout said, this is who she is now. Whether you like it or not, she's my wife. So do you, do you get a little bit of the gravity of the situation? And he says, not just for me, right? It's not just... Here, she's my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. And you, you are all witnesses of this today. And, and I just want you to stop for a second and ask this question with me, why? Why would Boaz do this? One is because it's the right thing to do, right? But, but two because of grace. This is a beautiful picture of grace. Ruth had nothing to offer. Right? She had no she had no name. She had no family really to speak of. She had no property, she had no position, she had no clout. All she had was a mother-in-law and debt. It's not a good prospect, right? That's what she brought to the table. And Boaz in fact, just like Mr. So-and-so, right? He's like, hey, I might lose my inheritance. Boaz, and I want you to get this, is why it's a picture of grace. Boaz exchanged places with Mahlon, Ruth's dead husband. What Boaz is saying is like, yeah, this guy's right. He might lose his inheritance. In fact, Boaz is giving up his position, his wealth, all that he has to take this dead man's name to marry Ruth. And it's not that he didn't know she was a Moabite. It's not that he didn't know who her people were, her ancestors, her history, the things that had happened. He saw Ruth. Mr. So-and-so saw a Moabitess. Mr. So-and-so saw loss. He saw her as worth it. And just a side note right now, aren't you glad today that we have a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who sees you? Not everything else around you that sees you as worth it. Because this is such a picture of grace. This is a small picture of grace of what Jesus Christ did. The one who had power position, who stepped down out of heaven and took our place. We have nothing to bring to him. In fact, the stuff that we even have, he gave to us in the first place. What we have to bring to the table is our shame, our sin, our debt. And yet he still welcomes us in. This should blow our minds that he seeks to redeem us, to give us a name, his. For one reason, relationship. Like Boaz. What he didn't have was a relationship. And he saw Ruth as worth it. And that's what he desired to give for her. The one thing she did have to offer. 
the one thing we have to offer. So, but back to the story, right? So this is, this is Boaz, and this is what he's saying. And he's like, hey, all you people right now, you see this. You're my witness. And here's what the people say back to him. We get to hear, how do the people respond to seeing this? And this is what they say in verse 11. All the people who are in the court, this huge crowd at this time, the elders, said this, we are witnesses. And you're like, okay, what, what's coming out of their mouth next? What, what comment do they have to say about this? What rude remark do they have? But instead, this is, this is what comes out. We are witnesses, and may the Lord make the woman. Who's the woman in this case? Say it again, Bob. Ruth, right? May the Lord make Ruth. No more Moabitess. May the Lord make her who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. These, These are the founding women of the nation of Israel. They're the ones who had... Twelve children, the twelve tribes of Israel, like, may God make her like them. And then they turn their attention to Boaz and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah. It's just another way of saying Bethlehem and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. I don't have time to get into that story, but I I highly recommend going back to Genesis and reading that, right? But this this is Judah, the name of the tribe whom they are from. There is no greater thing they can say to Ruth and Boaz at this point. This is is a patriarchal society, and for them to say, may may God make Ruth like Leah and Rachel, may God make you like Perez, this is like winning the Heisman Trophy for them, right? This is the Emmy Awards. This is the Nobel Peace Prize. Whatever you want to put in there, this is the height of what they could achieve, and God is blessing giving them a new identity. It's no longer Ruth the Moabite. It's no longer Boaz, the son of a Canaanite prostitute. We see Leah. We see Rachel. We see Perez. Because of their sacrifice, because of what they gave up to take care of those in need for doing what is right, they said, blessed are you. May God make you like that. And that makes Mr. So-and-so seem so foolish at this point. And I I hate to say it, but I think we exchange what God wants to do in us and through us so often because we look at what we think we might lose. What we think we might have to give up. But he said, may your name be great. And number three, we look at the last two people we're going to look at in this story because Ruth and Boaz, they're doing great, right? They, they get to get together, all this kind of stuff. But what about Naomi, the one who started in this? The one who lost husband and children and future? What about her? What does she get in this? So we, we turn to the end of the story in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Right? We've got two whole chapters about their courtship. And we've got one little verse. And they got married and had a baby, right? Because the story is not really necessarily about them. It moves on to Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, you would think they would be saying this to Ruth, right? Hey, good job. You just had a son. But they go to Naomi and say this, blessed 
is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. May His name, the Redeemer, the Son, may the Son's name become famous in Israel. May He, the Son, also be able to be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So Ruth is still getting accolades at this point, right? But, but the focus is on Naomi. And let me explain why that's so big to her, right? Because there's no retirement home at this point. There's only security they have is family. And so Naomi is old. She's like, I don't have an heir. There's no one to take care of me in my old age. I'm going to die alone, left out, forgotten. And God right here says, no, 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 no. He's not left you without a redeemer. There's a child. In verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, the son has been born to Naomi. You might be thinking, what are you talking Like a son's been born to Naomi. A son has been born to Ruth. This is Ruth's child. But for any grandparents in the room, you know that child belongs to you. Right? The quicker you're willing to accept that, the better it'll be off for you, right? So in, in a real sense, though, this, this was Naomi's redemption. This son took the place of her child. And that's the gift to Naomi at the end of this. And so they named him Obed, which means worshiper. And so the same Naomi who was empty is now overfilled with joy. This same Naomi who was bitter is now rejoicing. This same Naomi who was broken now has hope. At the end of this, a son, Obed, a redeemer has been given. And, at, and we think, okay, this is great. Nice wrap up. Things are going good. Everybody lives happily ever after. But there's still more. It's almost like this little tagline, like we're already moving on, getting out. And you say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Obed, he had a son. He's the father of Jesse. And Jesse, guess what? He had a son too, the father of David. And if you're hearing this for the first time, we may have heard Ruth before, so we lose the shock value of this. But if you're hearing it, as it's original hearers, you're thinking, What? This whole time we've been talking about David's family, David, the, the same David, right? David, the, the king, the, the, the David who wrote all the Psalms that we still read and sing, the same David who's a man after God's own heart, that same David, the same David who was promised that the Messiah would come through his household, David, that's who you're talking about here? And their, their minds are like, oh my goodness, I would have never, who, did you know this was coming? And you better believe Naomi, back in Moab, when she is wailing with her daughter-in-laws, thinking, God has forsaken me, you never saw this coming. She had such a small glimpse, and this is something that lets us know how much bigger God's plan really is. And it doesn't just stop with David. We have the New Testament too, right? We get, we get Matthew. We love genealogies, don't we? Everybody's like, if I could read whose father was who or who begat who, that would be great. In fact, most of us have that memorized, right? That's... So in Matthew chapter 1, we see this lineage continue. David had a son, Solomon. Solomon had a son. They continued having a son until eventually this guy named Jacob had a son, right? His son was named Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, 
to whom was born Jesus the Christ. You see, this is so much bigger than just Naomi. So much bigger than just Ruth. Even so much bigger than David. This is Jesus Christ's family. So, conclusion, right? What do we do with this? Now that we know the story, right? What do we, what do, we do? So glad you asked that, right? There's so many things that we learn about God from this story. And I, I want you to catch this because this is the point. So we've been looking at the power of story, empathizing and stuff. This is the point, right? We see who God is. We see that God cares for the widow. We see this in Naomi. We see that God has concern for the foreigner. We see this in Ruth. We see God's compassion on the lonely. We see this in Boaz. Right? And, and I just want to say this too. We see God's capability of bringing about something amazing. We see that God uses his people for his purposes. And I'm just going to ask this question. How many Naomi's and Ruth's do we pass by on a daily basis? See, no longer is it just those people. We have a name now. How many, how many Naomi's and Ruth's do we continue going on our way, right? These these Ruths who come in and get chastised or who get mistreated or called names, right? How many of these people do we actually care for and exhibit God's character upon? Or do we just continue and don't say anything, right? I mean, this is not a political statement either. It's a theological statement. Do we care for the widow? Do we care for the foreigner? Do we even care for the Boazes who on the outside look like they have everything, wealth, power, status, but inside are empty because there's no one there? Do we care for these people like God cares clearly for them? And the the thing is that God wants to use his people, right? I mean, God used Boaz to take care of Ruth. God wants to use us to take care of others. But yet, sadly, sometimes we're just like Mr. So-and-so, and we're like, man, I can't get involved in that. For the voiceless, for those who don't have someone there. I, I can't, I don't have time for that. What if, what if it might cost me my estate? And we're willing to settle for obscurity when God is giving us this great gift of being a part of his redemptive story. He gives us that choice. We can, we can do that if we want to. But something we need to also see is that God exalts the humble and those who seek him. In this story, we also see God's plan is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. And we rob ourselves by not being an active part. And so I'm going to ask you this question. If you want to take some notes on this, I'm going to have you write down some things. Because I had to ask myself this same question as I was going through this. What keeps me from living wholeheartedly for God? What what keeps me from being Boaz? What keeps me from being rude? What keeps me from doing that? And... From this story, we have some examples, right? I mean, we have some things. Maybe, maybe it's fear. We looked at this for a little bit. Maybe it's fear of what I have to give up. Just like so-and-so, right? And, and we need to flip our thinking. Instead of thinking, what do I have to give up? We, think, we need to think about, what do I have to gain? What am I investing in? Jesus Christ said it this way, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found, and in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had to buy the field. Or again, Jesus says it this way, who of you wants to save your life? If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. Instead of thinking about what do we have to give up, because that's what kept me from coming to Christ for so long. I saw Christianity as just a bunch of rules that I had to give up. I had to not do this or do this. 
I thought about, man, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to hang out over here. I'm not going to be able to do that. And I robbed myself. I literally robbed myself of life as it was intended to be lived, of true joy that can never be taken. And so what are we, what are we exchanging? And so if you want to write this question down, right? Write, write it down this way. What is God calling me to give up? in order to be free to live for him? What is God calling me to give up in order to be free to live for him? He offers us life. So maybe it's fear of what you have to give up. Maybe that's keeping you from living wholeheartedly. Or maybe, maybe it's a lack of trust. Like Elimelech, right? His name literally means, my God is king. That's what Elimelech means. My God is king. And I find sometimes that we say the same thing. Yeah, Jesus is king. Praise God. He's in control. All of these things, and yet it makes no impact on how we live our life day to day, right? We are like practical atheists. With our mouth, we say, yeah, we believe in God, but with our actions, we live completely different. So maybe it's because we don't fully trust, right? When there's a famine in the land, do you lean on your own plans or his promises? If you want to write it down this way, write this. What is God calling me to do? What is he calling me to do that has me scared to step out in faith? What is God calling me to do that has me scared to step out? And ultimately, in this story, we see it this way. It's God who provides, right? The Lord was the one who came to Bethlehem and provided food. The Lord was the one who came to Ruth, who couldn't have a child for this whole time and provided a child. It's, it's all coming from the Lord anyway. We fool ourselves into thinking it's from us. Three, there may, and this may not be you, right? I, wanna, I want you to sincerely ask yourself, where do I find myself in this story? Where am I in? And you may have already identified it right off the bat. You may be like, man, you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I've lost. You don't know the pain I've suffered. Maybe you're right there with Naomi, right? And maybe that's one thing that's holding you back. Maybe it's pain and bitterness. And I just want to say this, right? Because this story is more than just a story, it's real. It's what actually happened. This, this woman could have never imagined what God was going to do in her life. When we have pain, when we have difficulty, what we see is the problem. We don't see past it. We don't see around it. It consumes us. And stories like these where God shows up, he's like, man, look, there's something bigger going on here. There's, there's a plan and a purpose. And you may be thinking, because of, because of my past mistakes or because of plans that failed or things like I didn't expect happened to me that may disqualify me from God ever working in my present and in my future, and that is not the case. Hear me on that, because I think a lot of us live here where we've made a past failure or plans that we've had fail and they don't work out like we had thought, and we think we find ourselves today thinking, God will not work in my present or in my future. That is not true. Unless you live in open rebellion against God, he has a plan and a purpose if you come to him. In fact, in Christ, 
the best is always yet to happen, period. He has a plan. So write this down if you want to. If you're, if you're thinking through this, what pain am I holding on to? What pain am I holding on to? Or if you want to think of it this way, what bitterness is defining me? What bitterness am I letting define me? And just like the lament that we read, pour out your heart to God like water. Cast your burdens on him because he cares for you. Maybe, maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's because we don't even know what it looks like. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Just like in Judges, and we're like, I don't, even, I don't even know what it completely looks like, really, for somebody to live wholeheartedly for Christ. If, if you see it, let me know, right? I mean, some of us don't know somebody in that situation, but God has always left a remnant. He's left Boazes that are out there who are seeking their best to live for him and share his word. So if you want to write that down, you can write down, who do I know like that? Who do I know that loves God and his word? Who do I know that loves God and his word? Spend time with him. Iron sharpens iron, and he's put us in this relationship together for a reason. Or maybe, maybe the reason why we're not living wholeheartedly for some, maybe it's because we're not even a part of the family of God. Like Ruth, at the very beginning of this story, she was not a part of the covenantal people of God. She was, she was a foreigner. She was separated. She wasn't in the promises. And for some of us this morning, that might be us. We might be a foreigner separated, and we're in need of a redeemer to redeem. Re- redeem. We, we looked at this word 14 times in this passage. You may be thinking in English, really, there's 10, but there's, there's more than that, right? Redeem just means to buy back, to rescue, to purchase, to renew. And that's what we need. There is no redemption without a redeemer. And for some of you this morning who have never really given your heart, your life to Jesus Christ, we, this, is, this is our reality. And if you're thinking it's just me talking about that, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, right? I mean, chapter 2, I, I do recommend you read all of Ephesians chapter 2 because he's saying you were dead in your sin and trespasses, right? But now you're alive in Christ, right? But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 puts it in this language that we can sound a little bit like Ruth in this. Paul says it this way. He says, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants, foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were outside excluded, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? Sound like somebody we read about just a little while ago? And he's, Paul, saying this to people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. He said, hey, guess what? That was you. You were like Ruth. You were separate. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, it doesn't end there. He's like, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the cost of redemption. Redemption Salvation is a free gift to us, but it costs somebody dearly. 
cost Christ his life, and he is offering it to us today. Right? And you need to ask yourself, really, have I really seen my need for forgiveness from God? Have I, have I really come to him for salvation? Have I really said, hey, please take my debt? Make me right with you? Give me a relationship with you? Have you, have you given him lordship? And so if, you're, if you want to write this down, two short things. Do I really believe? You don't have to answer this to me, but one day you'll have to answer it to Christ. Do I really believe? And the second one is very much like it. Have I given him control? Because if you say you believe and you haven't given him control, you don't really believe. Do I really believe? Have I given him control? See, none of us in this story of Ruth, after hearing all of this, would come to chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz had done so much to make a way for her to be his wife, had done so much to give up, to see her taken care of. None of us in our right mind would hear this story and expect Ruth to be at the altar, ready to get married to Boaz, and Ruth say, no, no, I'm good. I don't need your help. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it on my own, Boaz. I'm, I'm, I'm good over here. I don't need your redemption. None of us, <laughs> like, we would inspect our head, like Ruth, what are you doing? But we do this to Christ on a daily basis. We stiff arm Jesus and be like, I don't need your redemption. I'm good. I'm, I'm making it on my own over here. But like Ruth, we, we don't have anything to stand on but him. And there comes a time in our life, every single person's life, multiple times sometimes, pivotal moments in our lives where we must choose which course we're going to take. And it starts with taking one step. Do I trust him? Am I going to live for myself, or am I going to live for him? And I don't, I don't know what decision right now Christ is, is dealing with you on, what, what he's, he's put down, but this is a moment such as this, and I don't want you to leave from here. I don't want any of us to leave from here not having made a choice to follow him, to be who he's called us to be. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Tyler come up. Um, and we're, we're going to spend this time of just asking God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live this day? We can get consumed with what does five years from the road, down the road look like? He's interested in today. What decision will you make today? And many of you have these connection cards in your Word Weekly. If, if you want prayer from us as a staff team on this decision that you're wanting to make, of this decision that you need to step on, if you want prayer or just to let somebody know, just write that down on this, and you can put it in the black box on the way out. Because we go through these things every Monday and pray through them. So if you want somebody to know about this, to, to walk with you on this, just write it down here, or you can see me afterwards. I'll be right over here. I would love to talk with you, to pray with you, to see God's guidance with you.
And so that's, that's what this time is. It's a time of response. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of asking God, what would you have me do now? And so Tyler and Amita, they're going to they're gonna sing. We're going to worship. So if you want to remain seated and, and write down, you're more than welcome to. If you want to stand, continue praying for God's guidance, you're more than welcome to. If you want to sing this song as prayer, as worship, do that. But let this time be a response to him and his word. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. Lord, we, we don't even begin to understand what plans that you have for us, but we know their plans, not for harm, but for good, to prosper. Lord, you have set us in the heavenlies with your Son, Jesus Christ. For those of us who know you by name and are known by you and are redeemed, Lord, we thank you and we pray in this moment, Lord, that you would have your way in us, Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly, that we not miss you, that we we not live another day or waste another moment or have another stranger pass by, but Lord, would you put on us your heart for those that you love and died for. May you give us wisdom and understanding. May you do something in this moment now that will impact eternity. We pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one, believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior. He will save you. If you're listening to the service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during a time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.